Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, here with the Fiscamal mascot, Chance the Pupper, who just curled up right by my feet near where I happen to record. Uh, Mike the Sound Guy is still out. He's going to be out for at least a couple more weeks. He has talked a little bit about maybe coming back next month. Uh, we'll have him back whenever he is ready. Good news is his uh, his dad is still alive and is going to recover mostly. They don't think it'll be a full recovery because of his age, but they're cautiously optimistic. So if you're still the... Uh, the type, send him your thoughts, and uh, we'll hope that everything goes well. You notice we did not have an episode last week. Someone actually sent me a message on Twitter saying, hey, when is that episode going to be released? A short answer is it's not, because uh, we didn't record one. We're in a, the fall is just a very weird time for me, uh, because normally, like when we do this throughout the year, we try to wall off weekends as podcast time. So Friday, Saturday, we'll do the outline. Sunday, we'll record and edit. Then, of course, Monday, it's released. Well, that changes in the fall because I do a lot of volunteer work that happens to uh, kick up during the fall semester. So, for example, uh, this past Saturday, I spent a few hours at my alma mater, the North Carolina Central University School of Law, judging their trial team competitors for their tryouts. Uh, Next weekend, I'm going to be at an alumni association meeting. The weekend after that, I'm actually judging a competition at Duke University School of Law. So there's that piece of it. I haven't had as much time on the weekends to do the podcast as I would like. So that's the stuff that happens every fall. And then just by chance with the law firm, uh, we've had a very weird trial schedule. So like typically, if you're running a small practice like I am, you try to space out when you do your trials, because you have to put actual effort into to doing it, you know, you got to put effort into everything. Don't misunderstand that. But with trial stuff, you've got to make sure that your uh, witnesses are coached, your exhibits are prepared, you've got some kind of uh, remarks ready to go for your opening and your closing. They don't have to be a lot because as lawyers, we tend to ad lib as we go. But there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And because of that, you try and have, you know, if you're doing a bench trial, one every at most three or four weeks. And then if you're doing a jury trial, one every three or four months, ideally. If you're doing more than that, you might be able to pull it off if you have support staff. But if you're doing it by yourself, uh, a lot of times you risk doing a disservice to your client. And my calendar has just, by sheer happenstance, ended up where I've had a a lot of trials this month. We had one two Mondays ago. Uh, We had one this past Monday. We had another one on Wednesday. So the prep for those to make sure that I don't let my clients down ate into prep time during the week that I was using for the podcast because the other stuff was encroaching on the weekends, et cetera, et cetera. So there's that. And then today, the day you get this, October 22nd, I am actually speaking at Queen's University of Charlotte tonight about the role of law in social change, which is a topic that uh, I talk about, you know, kind of a... You know when you're like bullshitting with your friends and you talk about different theoretical stuff? Like when I bring Dave and James on, the type of shit that we talk about? Well, imagine that and then someone says, oh, hey, you'd actually be great to speak at this at an event. 
Uh, it kind of caught me off guard. I'm looking forward to it, but it's also mildly terrifying. So I've been working on my presentation to make sure that that's uh, tight as well. So anyway, long story short, did not have a podcast last Monday because life has been encroaching and it's going to be hit or miss for most of October and November, especially when I'm kind of doing all of this on my own in Mike's absence. So just know if there comes a Monday and you do not see a podcast, Odds are good that it's because we didn't record a podcast. Now, sometimes I might surprise you and it'll come later in the afternoon or later in the week. I don't know. But the way things have been, just kind of assume that it's a temporary hiatus and we will be back. Uh, Okay, so that's it as far as the updates go. I don't know about the second piece of our evidence series. I was hoping to have it last Thursday, but that did not materialize. God willing, it will be sometime soon. That's the only commitment that I can give you. Uh, but just know that it's it's in my head, like the outline. I know what I'm going to talk about. I just have to commit it to paper. So I've got it to look at as I speak into the microphone. All right. So if you've not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. The Twitter account for the podcast is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a written comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our financial sponsors, you can do that on patreon.com slash fisk that is patreon.com slash f-s-c-k we have a little bit of bonus content there if uh, you give us seven dollars a month you get some uh, law and 40s on a handful of different topics and then there's new stuff that happens every now and again when i remember to actually post something on there so all right let's go ahead and talk a little bit about chance stop Knock it off. Sorry, forgive me. The dog decided he wants to go digging into the recycling uh, because he has a thing about plastic jars. He loves licking the contents out of used plastic jars, which is fine, you know, because the first time he did it, he was leaving the bits and pieces on the floor. At least I thought that way I could clean them up. Uh, Well, last week he ended up coughing up. Plug your ears if you're easily grossed out, by the way, because the next thing I'm going to tell you is gross. But he has a rope toy that gets, you know, torn apart over time. uh, And he coughed up basically a string where it's combination rope toy guts with plastic pieces that I thought he had spit out, but he had actually swallowed. Uh, So I don't let him touch any of the plastic jars anymore. So we just finished off a jar of peanut butter this morning. For me, I give him a little bit of peanut butter with his treats and such. uh, So he's no longer allowed to touch those jars, and he decided to make a run for it. So just know that segue where I'm telling him to stop, that's what that was. Uh, Okay, so going back to politics. Early voting has started in most states. It's definitely started here in North Carolina. Uh, First day of early voting was this last Wednesday. By the time you get this episode on the 22nd, odds are good. Those states that have early voting probably include yours, and the process has already begun. And I want you to vote, obviously. It's hard for me to overstate the degree to which I desperately want you to go vote, particularly for the federal stuff, because our federal government the people that live in Washington, D.C., have all lost their collective fucking minds. And the only way that we have any hope of restoring some degree of sanity is electoral consequences because they're obviously not listening to anything else. Now, state-by-state stuff, that's going to vary depending on where you live. I'm going to talk to you all a little bit about the North Carolina statewide races and who I'm planning to vote for, and I hope you will do the same. But at the very least, make sure to vote for the House of Representatives, vote for Senate, and if you don't mind, vote against any person who happens to be supporting our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, because all of his fucking sycophants get 
getting paid with our tax money are basically running everything into the damn ground. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about North Carolina specifically. There are a handful of local races, sheriffs, district attorneys, district court, and superior court judges, all that stuff. Not going to talk about those, but do want to talk about our statewide races because there's some stuff where it's just bad. So, And the bad stuff in particular is we have six proposed constitutional amendments uh, on the ballot. And I'm going to ask that you vote no on all six of them because that's what I did. Uh, we have a ballot item to take away the appointment powers of the governor. We have one on the uh, Board of Elections. We have one on hunting and fishing. We have one on crime victim rights. Uh, we have two others that, frankly, I don't fucking remember because they're just – they're all there and they're all bad. I mean they were put on the ballot to try and juice Republican turnout not to actually do anything important. Uh, oh, a voter ID is one of them. You know, and that's – I'm gonna let me stick with that, okay? So voter ID – it's a good example of why I still want you to vote no, because the entire process and the outcome is bullshit. So one of the amendments is the voter ID law that's going to put into North Carolina's constitution a requirement that someone present a photo ID to vote. Now, normally, I'm on record supporting voter ID. I'm fine with it. I think it's something that should be done. Uh, I'm a big believer in social enfranchisement, so people that don't have IDs, I'm all for helping them get them easily and cheaply. Uh, but the actual ballot text is just saying, okay, we're going to put in the Constitution that you have to present a photo ID. There are no details at all whatsoever. All of the details will have to be implemented by statute, which the General Assembly can do already, which they tried to do already, except it was thrown out by a federal court because they deliberately targeted black voters and any methods of voting that black voters used, any forms of identification that were not a photo ID that tended to be had by black voters. Uh, they made those improper. They made it harder for poor people and minorities to vote. They targeted black voters with, quote, surgical precision. That was what the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals language said. So you're voting on whether or not to include this random throwaway text in the Constitution that is going to require the General Assembly to do stuff that they've already tried to do and had ruled invalid. You know, well, then the question becomes, why the fuck are we putting that in the Constitution? You know, we have a few years back, we had something called Amendment 1, which basically said that uh, marriage was only between a man and a woman. Had the side effect, by the way, of abolishing all common law marriages, which created a mess. But in addition to that, it got invalidated by the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court held that same-sex marriage was uh, legal, that to ban it violated the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. So we have this piece of the Constitution that's just kind of there, but it's quite literally a dead letter. It has no impact at all. That's what a lot of this stuff is going to do. So that's what the voter ID law is going to do. It's something where it's going to require the General Assembly to do something that it can only do within the contours of federal law anyway. Uh, the, the hunting and fishing amendment most likely is going to end up invalidating local rules, trying to preserve uh, watersheds and that sort of thing. It's all just garbage. All of the amendments are garbage. They were all done to juice turnout. Do me a favor and vote no. Nix all six because that's what I did. Uh, you also have four judicial races on the ballot. And these are important to me because, of course, I'm a lawyer, so I deal with this stuff. 
Uh, and I actually voted for two Republicans and two Democrats. So first we have the North Carolina Supreme Court, which currently there are seven justices. Four of them are Democrats. Three of them are Republicans. Uh, Barbara Jackson is one of the Republicans who is up for reelection. Now, spoiler, she's most likely going to lose. I recognize that going in, but I voted to reelect her anyway because she's actually done a decent job. She's a good justice. Uh, but what has happened, predictably is that the General Assembly has lost its fucking mind and has passed so much unconstitutional legislation in the past four to six years uh, that a lot of Democrats rightfully are looking to take out another Republican on the court so it can then be a five to two Democrat majority. And I don't blame them for that. I totally understand that. Uh, Anita Earls is the Democrat candidate. She has got years of experience doing civil rights law. She will be a good justice as well. Uh, but I'm just of the philosophy that, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Our court has done a fairly good job here, and Justice Jackson has done a good job. So I voted to reelect her. Uh, this is the case, this is the race, rather, where there's a second Republican, a guy named Chris Anglin, who's actually a friend of mine, who had been a Democrat for years and switched in order to basically help split the vote. So what happened was, and this is, I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent, I apologize. The General Assembly has repeatedly tinkered with the judicial races to try and consolidate their power. So previously, races were nonpartisan. They made the Court of Appeals instead to have partisan labels. So Republicans, of course, swept all of those races in 2016 as part of the Trump wave. Well, then they decided to make the district and superior court races partisan, and they made the Supreme Court race partisan because Michael Morgan, the Democrat, ended up getting elected beat the incumbent Republican, uh, because what you had was, in addition to adding party labels, they changed the rules so that all Republicans always had the first line on the ballot, because there's political science showing that voters tend to uh, vote for whoever's first in a given race, so that picks up a couple extra points. Well, Michael Morgan was first in that particular race, so he ended up winning him, the governor, and the attorney general were the only three bright spots for the Democrats in 2016. Well, the party decided, okay, you know, Republicans have super majorities in both chambers of our legislature, so they decided they were going to add party labels to the ballot. In addition to adding party labels, they abolished judicial primaries so that a party could not choose who their candidate was going to be on the ballot, and they did that in tandem with a private organization that was sending out mailers to Democrats trying to encourage other Democrat attorneys to file with the goal of splitting the Democrat vote so that Justice Jackson, the Republican, could get reelected. Well, in what was a totally predictable thing that anyone with even the slightest modicum of common sense would have realized was a possibility, uh, Anglin, who is a Democrat, said, well, hey, I can do what the Republicans are doing, changed his registration to Republican and then filed. So now he is trying to split the Republican vote so that Anita Earls can win. Um, so that's the particular race. And it's one of those things where I get it. I understand it. I don't blame the Democrats for doing it. Uh, I just hate that Justice Jackson has done a good job and is most likely going to lose as a result of it. So I did vote for her to be reelected. Uh, out of the Court of Appeals, there are three judges up. Uh, John Arrowwood is a Democrat. He is an incumbent. I voted to reelect him for the same reason I voted to reelect Justice Jackson. He's done a good job, and I don't feel compelled to replace him with whoever's running against him. Uh, the second seat 
is uh, open. It used to be Judge Calabria. She decided not to run for re-election. There are two Republicans and one Democrat running. Uh, one of the Republicans is Jefferson Griffin. He is a judge in Wake County. I voted for him because he's done a good job during the years he's been on the district court bench in Wake. And then seat three is Judge Elmore's seat. That is open because Judge Elmore decided not to run for re-election uh, because we have mandatory retirement ages for judges here in North Carolina. And if he was elected to another term, he would have to retire midway through. So he just decided to have that open. Uh, and I voted for Allegra Collins, who was the Democratic candidate. She's a professor at Campbell Law School. She's a former clerk to one of the judges on the Court of Appeals. Uh, there are both a Republican and a Libertarian in the race. I didn't even consider the Libertarian, and I hate to admit this, uh, but the Libertarian Party has been so lackluster in their terms of their organization. I just figured he was not going to win, so I didn't give him any thought. But I actually pondered briefly the Republican candidate and then went to his website. And I hate to confess this because it's incredibly shallow of me, uh, but I instantly decided there was no chance in hell I could bring myself to vote for him because his website looks like something out of the 1990s. It is atrociously bad. Uh, his name is Chuck Kitchen. The website is kitchenforcourtofappeals.com. I want you to go there because I just want you to see how atrocious this is. He may very well be a totally fine attorney and potential judge, but holy shit, it looks terrible. It is atrociously, atrociously terrible. It frankly looks like something that I would have created when I was a freshman at NC State back when HTML4 was the standard and everything else. And it's just, it's a joke. And the thing is, I cannot bring myself to support somebody when they're basically asking me to give them two things. One, they want me to give them my tax money so that they can make their livelihood off of me. I can go to work and pay taxes so that they can live. Uh, but then in addition to giving them my tax money, also giving them the power to decide appeals over my clients' cases. And if you're going to do that, I expect you to put a little bit more effort into your candidacy and convince me that, in fact, yes, I should give you this opportunity and instead, this guy is, it's a fucking joke. Like, I'm telling you, go to kitchenforcourtofappeals.com, uh, laugh for a bit, and then go vote for Allegra Collins. So those are my things. Vote against all six amendments. Uh, I voted to reelect Justice Jackson and Judge Arrowwood. And then for the open seats, I voted for Jefferson Griffin, who's a judge in Raleigh, and Allegra Collins, who is a professor at Campbell School of Law. Uh, so that's it on the politics. Now let's hop into the criminal justice news. We usually start out with stuff from the Circuit Courts of Appeals. Uh, I have one good case, but before that I have one kind of a uh, humorous case, if you will. So out of the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals in D.C., there's a case called Shirapa versus United States. And I'm just going to read for you the court's order because there's more details in the news, but it was hilarious. And we're going to give you a link to this so you can see it. Um, it says, and I quote, Appellant Jeffrey Nathan Shirapa submitted to the court 18 copies of his confidential petition for panel rehearing and rehearing en bank. Now, en bank is when uh, all of the judges for a circuit rehear a case. So normally you get heard by a three-judge panel. They get to make a ruling, and then the full circuit has the ability to have, you know, for example, I think the fourth circuit, we've got like 15 judges here, I think. Uh, all of them can rehear the case. So that's what en bank means. Uh, upon examination, appellant affixed to each petition 
what appear to be samples of cannabinoids, which may be controlled substances possessed or mailed in violation of federal law. He's basically trying to have a particular uh, Controlled Substances Act thing declared unconstitutional. And to try and do that, he attached edibles to his stuff that he sent to the court, which is going to end up him getting prosecuted even more, by the way. But I just thought that was funny. So that's the funny case. The good news case out of the Sixth Circuit, and don't let it be said that I don't report good news. Um, The Court of Appeals has reversed the lower court decision that said drugs are contraband and police can kill them at will. Uh, So way back in episode 20, we talked about this case where a family had been raided by the police for drugs and the police just went off and committed puppyside repeatedly. They killed like three dogs, including one where they shot through the bathroom door and killed the dog in the bathroom because supposedly the officer thought the dog was going to open the door. Like, I don't know how the fuck they do that with their opposable thumbs and everything. Well, then when the family sued, the district court judge said, well, you know, they get qualified immunity uh, because these particular dogs were not properly licensed with the city and therefore they're just contraband and killing them is not a seizure under the Fourth Amendment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the Court of Appeals has said that was bullshit. So we're going to give you a link to the opinion, but I'm going to quote from a story in Reason magazine about the ruling. It says, quote, a federal appeals court ruled today that Detroit police didn't have carte blanche to shoot a woman's dogs during a drug raid simply because they weren't licensed. I'm going to pause. The police didn't know the dogs weren't licensed either at the time. This was a post hoc rationalization they came up with to try to avoid liability. Uh, Story continues, quote, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed and remanded a lower court ruling in the case of Nikita Smith, who filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the Detroit Police Department after a narcotics raid left three of her dogs dead. A federal judge had dismissed Smith's suit last year, ruling that her dogs, because they were unlicensed, amounted to contraband under the Fourth Amendment. In its ruling, the Sixth Circuit declared that not only was Smith entitled to some process under Michigan law before her dogs were seized, uh, sidebar killed, by the way, uh, but that her dogs, even if they were unlicensed, were still protected from unreasonable seizure under the Fourth Amendment. Subquote, by guaranteeing process to dog owners before their unlicensed dogs are killed, Michigan law makes clear that the owners retain a possessory interest in their dogs, the Court of Appeals wrote. This is particularly so in the context of everyday property that is not inherently illegal, such as some drugs, but instead is subject to jurisdiction-specific licensing or registration requirements, such as cars or boats or guns. Just as the police cannot destroy every unlicensed car or gun on the spot, they cannot kill every unlicensed dog on the spot. No shit. Knock me over with a feather. Uh, The story continues, quote, The case is the first time that federal courts have considered whether an unlicensed pet in violation of city or state code is still protected property under the Fourth Amendment. And that matters because the courts have already determined that uh, regular pets, proper pets, licensed pets, uh, are in fact protected under the Fourth Amendment from unreasonable searches and seizures. So kudos to Miss Smith. Uh, look forward to the city paying a hefty settlement when it's remanded. Uh, so out of general research news, I'm not going to give you the extended quotes on this because this is actually about a 2016 study 
Uh, but one of the cases we're going to talk about in the state-by-state news out of Maryland involves an officer who raped a woman during a traffic stop, and CNN re-upped this 2016 study uh, showing that over 400 officers were uh, charged, criminally charged, with forcible rape from 2005 to 2013, so an eight-year time span. Uh, And then there was an additional 636 criminally charged uh, with forcible fondling, and then several hundred more charged with other assorted sexual offenses. Uh, So we're going to give you a link to all of that because it's an old study, but it's still good, and it's a reminder of how many police uh, constantly get into shit like this on a regular basis. Because you think about it, 405 charges of rape, that's about 45 a year. 636 forcible fondlings, that's about 70 a year, plus the additional stuff on top of that. Those are just the people who get caught and ended up being in a jurisdiction where the district attorney is willing to file charges because a lot of times the police don't get caught because they know how to cover their tracks because they spend their time investigating crimes so they know what to avoid doing and in addition most of the time their discipline ends up being okay we're going to let you resign and you can go get hired by another department a few days later so you've got you know dozens of officers every single month like clockwork uh, doing stuff like this And it just kind of, they let it ride. So we'll give you a link to the story in the study. It's pretty sobering stuff. Uh, A new study in the federal news is that Customs and Border Patrol officers, a bunch of those also happen to get charged with crimes as well. So from that story, it says, quote, more than 500 employees of the United States Primary Border Security Agency were charged with drug trafficking, accepting bribes, and a range of other crimes over a two-year period. So 502 years. According to reports released on Friday, the reports released by the Customs and Border Protection's Office of Human Resource Management and its Office of Professional Responsibility covered just the years 2016 and 2017. The most common arrests were related to misconduct involving drugs or alcohol. The report included that 109 faced those kinds of charges in 2016 and 119 in 2017. Uh, Domestic or family misconduct was the second most common reason for the arrest of those people. 51 in 2017, which was up from 44 in 2016. Uh, Customs and Border Protection has a budget of over $15 billion and is the parent agency of the Border Patrol. Agency officials said the release of the annual reports underscores the agency's commitment to transparency and swift actions to weed out employees who violate the law or internal policies. They also said the reports show that a majority of employees carry out their duties without getting into trouble. whoop de fucking do You do not get a cookie on top of your taxpayer-funded paycheck when you do what you're hired to do in the first place. This is, this is an ongoing issue I have uh, with people that insist that police have to be patted on the back in addition to getting my money so that they can live. They're hired to do a job. It's no different than when my clients hire me to win their case. If I win their case, I don't say, okay, now in addition to having paid me, I demand that you get down on one knee and praise me to the hilt. It's just not how it works. You know, it's like when, when I go to Bojangles, you know, let's say I go to Bojangles and I get lunch and the cashier rings me up properly and I get my food that I ordered, you know, they don't then demand afterwards 
that I genuflect in front of all of the customers to talk about how amazing they are because they're paid to do that particular job. You know, them doing the job is why they're getting a paycheck, why they're still gainfully employed. So telling me that a majority of thousands of people doing what they're paid to do to the exclusion of other people who could just as easily take that particular job, uh, I just don't find particularly persuasive. Uh, so in the state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery out of Arkansas, we got two stories from Little Rock. One is judicial. One is news-related. The news stuff is from Radley Balco, who writes for The Watch in the Washington Post. Uh, I've talked about him in several podcasts. He really is the best in the industry when it comes to monitoring criminal justice fuckery around the country. And it's a very long read. Like, it's a long fucking column. And I'm going to give you a link to it. But here's a, some excerpts from the middle. Uh, he says, in addition to Roderick Talley, which is the guy that he talks about in the opening paragraphs, uh, I've talked to nine other people who have been raided by the LRPD's narcotics unit over the past two years. I've also reviewed more than 100 search warrants executed by the unit since 2016. And according to policing and Fourth Amendment experts, these interviews and warrants show that the LRPD narcotics cops and SWAT teams are routinely violating the Fourth Amendment rights of Little Rock residents. They're also putting people at unnecessary risk. And there's strong evidence that in some cases, officers have made demonstrably false statements under oath. There are three main areas of concern. First, the narcotics unit appears to be routinely violating the Fourth Amendment by serving nearly all of its warrants with no-knock raids. It's asking for no-knock warrants without demonstrating why each suspect merits a no-knock entry as required by federal law. Worse yet, Little Rock judges are then signing off on these particular warrants. Second, the LRPD is serving many of these warrants by using explosives that SWAT veterans I've interviewed say are reckless, dangerous, and wholly inappropriate for use in drug raids. I've also spoken to at least two people who say they were children in the room when the explosives were used. Finally, and perhaps most troubling, there's clear evidence that one informant whom LRPD drug cops have been using, the informant used to obtain probable cause against Tally and others, has been lying to police about his drug buys. At a minimum, the detectives who worked with him have been inexcusably sloppy in their handling of him. But there's also evidence that raises questions about their own truthfulness. So it's a long, long, long read. Uh, the informant in particular, they talk about the Tally case because Tally had cameras inside his apartment that were recording when the drug raid happened. The informant claimed to have bought cocaine from Tally. That became the probable cause to enter the home. Except when you look at the camera footage, he wasn't actually there the day that buy supposedly took place. He wasn't in the house. Uh, and then police, when they raided the place, they supposedly found a small amount of marijuana. Well, that is different from the whole buying cocaine thing. Uh, long story short, Roderick Talley, all the charges against him eventually got dismissed because he had this camera evidence that the police basically fabricated everything. So it's there's a lot to it. There's a whole lot to it. I'm going to give you a link. Please go read it all. It's going to take a while, but it's really eye-opening stuff. Uh, also, out of Little Rock, the Supreme Court <laughs> – this is bizarre um, – so essentially, the Supreme Court removed a lower court judge from considering uh, execution cases, death penalty cases, because that particular judge had ruled that one of the drugs used to kill people was unconstitutional. So the justices then removed him, 
And that particular judge filed a complaint with the judicial standards group that they have in Arkansas. And the justices are trying to have the complaint dismissed by filing a petition with their own court, which is, it's so weird. Uh, So here's a quote from the story. It says, quote, five Arkansas Supreme Court justices are trying to block the state's judicial discipline agency from sanctioning them over their quick decision to remove a judge from capital cases after he participated in death penalty protests. The five justices filed a petition with their own court on Wednesday seeking dismissal of the ethics complaint filed last month by the Arkansas Judicial Discipline and Disability Commission. The justices assert that the ethics complaint is, subquote, clearly outside the JDDC's jurisdiction. Uh, two other justices, Courtney Goodson and Robin Wynn, did not join the petition. The entire court plans to recuse itself from hearing the justices' petition. A lawyer for the justices told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. I don't know what happens in that case. I mean, I don't know. If the entire court recuses from hearing your case, do you bring in retired justices to hear it? It's it's strange. I don't know. If any of you live in Arkansas and you happen to be an attorney that knows how that will work, let me know because I'm just intrigued by the procedural shenanigans taking place. Uh, let's go over to California. So California, we got several stories with them today. The first one is going to be good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. Uh, California will reconsider life sentences for several thousand third strike offenders uh, who have been uh, imprisoned because of nonviolent crimes. So under California's third strikes law, if you have a third felony, you get life in prison in a nutshell. I think that's how it works. Don't quote me on that, but they actually teach that in law school here in North Carolina. Um, So from the story, it says, quote, California will reconsider life sentences for up to 4,000 nonviolent third strike criminals by allowing them to seek parole under a ballot measure approved by voters two years ago. The state will craft new regulations by January to include the repeat offenders in the early release provisions. Governor Jerry Brown also will not appeal a court ruling that the state is illegally excluding the nonviolent career criminals from parole under the 2016 ballot measure he championed to reduce the prison population and encourage rehabilitation. The state parole board estimates 3,000 to 4,000 nonviolent third strikers could be affected, said Corrections Department spokeswoman Vicki Waters. Subquote, but they would have to go through rigorous public safety screenings and a parole board hearing before any decision is made. Good for them. So this is off topic. Well, it's kind of tangentially related. But we talked about in the past episodes about how we're in an era of decarceration, more people getting out of prison than are going in. And someone on Twitter posted a chart. And it's actually not really – we're not really in an era of decarceration. We're in an era where California has been allowing a lot of people to get out of prison, and other states have either held the same or actually increased their prison rates. It would be nice if California's approach, assuming it doesn't lead to an increase in crime, which I don't think it will, if that becomes something that other states follow – Uh, It'll be great for society to have more people out and contributing to it instead of being locked up in cages. Out of Central Valley, California, another story relating to some of their judicial reforms that have taken place. Quote, in the first test of a newly signed law that significantly narrows California's felony murder rule, a judge today ordered the immediate release of a man who has spent nearly a decade awaiting trial in a double murder. 
Nico Wilson had initially faced the death penalty in connection with the July 2009 murders of Gary and Sandra DiBartolo, a couple killed during a robbery at their home. Prosecutors had accused Wilson of helping plan the robbery, not of killing the couple. He initially faced the death penalty under a legal doctrine known as the felony murder rule, which holds that anyone involved in certain types of serious felonies that result in death can be held as liable as the actual killer. And I'm going to note, we actually have that in North Carolina as well. The types of offenses where the felony murder rule applies, uh, we use the acronym BARC+. Uh, So burglary, arson, armed robbery, rape, kidnapping, plus any offense involving the use of a deadly weapon. Any of those crimes, if someone happens to die as part of it, uh, if you're a co-conspirator in that particular crime, you too can be charged as if you were the principal who actually killed somebody. Uh, So that's the felony murder rule. It's in most states. California is rolling theirs back. Story continues, quote, but a new law signed by Governor Jerry Brown in September significantly narrowed that doctrine and prompted prosecutors to drop the murder charges against Wilson. So he will now be getting out and we'll see if that continues around the state. So out of Oakland, one of the legendary gang investigators who had actually been working for the Alameda County District Attorney's Office recently, uh, he's been convicted and is going to jail for accepting bribes from one of his confidential informants. From that story, says, quote, Harry Hu, a legendary Oakland police gang expert and Asian organized crime investigator, has pleaded guilty to taking bribes from his longtime confidential informant in exchange for helping him avoid prosecution, federal court documents show. Hu admitted that while he worked as an Alameda County District Attorney Inspector, he received free trips to Reno and Las Vegas, which included alcohol and paid escorts who also admitted that he knew about the informant's connection to a 2013 double murder in Mendocino County and that he lied to the FBI about his relationship with the informant Wing Wo Ma. The plea deal unsealed Thursday tarnishes a 37-year career spent infiltrating Chinese-American gangs and taking down some of their biggest leaders, first as a member of the Oakland Police Department and then as an Alameda County District Attorney Inspector. In Oakland's Chinatown, there was perhaps no cop better known than who. He was convicted of conspiracy to commit fraud against the government and bribery and faces a maximum prison sentence of five years. He appeared Wednesday afternoon before U.S. District Judge Charles Breyer in San Francisco federal court in a hearing closed to the public. When approached by a Bay Area news group reporter in the hallway who identified himself but refused to answer questions, uh, who is alleged to have meddled with Oakland police investigations in December 2009, two years after he retired from the police force to work for the DA's office, who called an Oakland officer and said that Ma was a witness for a marijuana grow investigation when he was, in fact, the suspect, records show. Uh, Ma, who is also known as Mark Ma, was an early suspect in a 2013 double murder of suspected Chinese underworld gangster Jim Tat Kong and his girlfriend. He was shot dead in a minivan in Mendocino County. Ma has since been indicted for those murders. Court records show who had his suspicions about the slayings and knew Ma was there at the time. Uh, At a meeting with who at an Oakland hotel, Ma said the FBI interviewed him. Based on his demeanor, who suspected him of being somehow involved but did not contact investigators. 
Rogers. A 2015 FBI affidavit said Ma, subquote, attempted to continue to use his position as a law enforcement informant with multiple handlers to obfuscate his involvement and manipulate the investigation of the homicides. By pleading guilty to a felony who forfeits the portion of his retirement pay after the date of the crime under state pension law that took effect in 2013, but he will get to keep his estimated $150,693 pension from the Oakland Police Department. Wow. Uh, Out of Orange County, we have the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And in this case, it turns out officers were fabricating a story about what happened after they beat a drunk guy. Story says, quote, two police dash cam videos cast doubt on the charges against an Orange County man accused of resisting arrest by violently threatening an officer. Instead, the video suggests an Orange County Sheriff's Department officer brutally assaulted the man and then worked with a supervisor to cover up the incident. Mohammed Sayam, an Orange County man, is facing charges of resisting arrest over a confrontation with police officers Michael Devitt and Eric Oda that turned violent in the early hours of August 19th. Devitt claimed in an incident report and an interview with his supervisor that Sayam assaulted him after the officers found Sayam intoxicated in his car in a Stanton parking lot. But Devitt's various accounts of the incident differed on key facts and are contradicted by footage recorded by two police dashboard cameras. The first police video begins when the officers try to wake up Sam, who's slouched on the driver's seat of his car. They then ask him to show identification. Sam appears intoxicated and disoriented, answers with partially intelligible responses, statements, and insults while laughing and at times falling over. Devitt seems to grow increasingly frustrated. When Sam attempts to exit the car, Devitt pushes him back in his seat, warning him not to get out. Don't touch me like that, Sam then tells the officer. As Sam appears to try to pull away from the officer, Devitt yanks Sam's arm out of the vehicle the video shows and pulls Sam out entirely. Devitt then pins Sam against the car, grabs him by the face, and punches him repeatedly and rapidly. By the third punch, Sam appears to lose consciousness and collapses. As Devitt continues to deliver blows, about six in total, Officer Oda comes around to the driver's side of the vehicle and appears to forcibly pull Sam downward until he falls to the ground. Subquote, Mo needs to calm down a little bit, Devitt says, as Sam lies face down on the ground, barely moving. The second dash cam video was recorded from the vehicle of Sergeant Christopher Hibbs, the supervisor of Devitt and Oda, who arrived on the scene just minutes after the incident. Devitt can be heard telling his supervisor that he pulled Sam from the car and punched the drunken man because Sam tried to, subquote, bear hug him. Subquote, he's way taller than me. Devitt tells Hibbs about Sam, who is 5 feet 11 inches tall. Subquote, and like he just comes up on me, and essentially he almost hugs on me, so I punch him in the face probably like three or four times. Toward the end of the second dash cam video, while Hibbs is still present, several unidentified officers have gathered at the scene and stand near the hood of Devitt's car. The officers tell Hibbs about two fights with suspects they have recently gotten into. Subquote, that was a good fight, one of the deputies says. I got in another good one last week, an officer adds while laughing. Now, I know this next part is going to shock you, but the story continues. During this interaction, Hibbs checks to see if the audio is on for his body recording device. Subquote, this thing on, Hibbs says. It says on. On is on, right? Moments later, apparently startled, 
one of the officers says to Hibbs, you're recording this now? An officer responds, you've been recording this the whole, and before the sentence is completed, another officer standing near Hibbs appears to flip off Hibbs's recording device, which stops the audio for the remainder of the video at the scene. It's a total coincidence that they decided to cut off the recording of what was going on. Uh, story continues, quote, Devitt's accounts from his interviews with his supervisor to his final report change a number of times. In his incident report, Devitt contradicts the dash cam video and wrote that he, subquote, maintained a grasp on Sam's arm, but he stepped out of the vehicle and stood over me. Devitt leaves out the bear hug claims he made to his supervisor during the moments after the incident occurred. Devitt also changed his account on what precipitated his punches. Subquote, as I pushed him against the car, Sam grabbed my external vest and started pulling at it. He did not let go of my vest and continued to physically struggle. Due to his aggressive demeanor, I believed Sam was going to continue to try and physically assault me. Uh, but in the video, Sam is not seen grabbing onto Devitt's vest, pulling at it, or refusing to let go. While well, still at the scene during a later interview with Hibbs, Devitt once again amends his account. Account. Subquote, he tried to bear hug me, Devitt said, and alleges that Sam used racial slurs during the incident. The video never shows Sam using racial slurs at all. Uh, so that's all out of California in Delaware, in Sussex. Uh, we have people dying because they can't pay fines. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, three hours before Tiffany Reeves was scheduled to go before a Delaware judge Monday in Kent County Family Court, officials at the Sussex Correctional Institution found her dead in her jail cell. Reeves, a 37-year-old mother of three from Smyrna, had been at the state prison near Georgetown since Friday, according to the Delaware Department of Correction. Court records indicate she was wanted on a warrant related to an unpaid fine and arrested on Friday. Unable to post $1,202 bail, she remained in the state's custody pending Monday's hearing. What prompted her death and how she was discovered inside the facility remain unknown to family, friends, and the public. The DOC turned over Reeves' body to the Division of Forensic Science for an autopsy, but those results will not be made public. Good luck getting her to pay the fine now that she's dead. Uh, so that's out of Delaware and Florida. In Coral Springs, we have the first rule again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. As an officer is caught on video beating the shit out of an unarmed 14-year-old black girl. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, A 14-year-old girl was caught on camera being violently restrained after cops say she resisted arrest Thursday at the Coral Square Mall in Coral Springs. The teenager is seen in a cell phone video taken by a bystander. She is face down, lying on her belly on the ground, and is punched twice in the side by a uniformed cop while being held down by another officer. The video was provided to the Miami Herald by a person who asked to remain anonymous. Now I'm going to note, the video is actually worse than described because the kid is not laying on her belly. She's actually being forced in that position. One officer is holding her down. The second officer has his knee on the top part of her back, another hand grabbing the bottom of her shorts while he uses his free hand to repeatedly punch her in the ribs. So like the kid can't move. She's barely kicking her legs trying to avoid being punched. Uh, so according to a Facebook post, by the Cruel Springs Police Department. They released a thing, and the caption of it says, Rumor Control. That was actually the header. Uh, it says, quote, As with all social media posts, it shows only the end of the story, not the incident in its entirety, which led up to the arrest. And that's according to the statement. Here's the thing. 
uh, the video speaks for itself. What happened beforehand does not justify beating a 14-year-old child. If you can't get a 14-year-old girl under control, you need to pick a new line of work. So we're going to give you a link to the video. We're going to give you a link to the full statement. And you can make up your own mind because it's pretty fucking disturbing. Uh, Out of Jackson County, Florida, we have a situation where a district attorney uh, blew the whistle on a dirty cop. And now she basically was ostracized to the point that she had to quit her job. From that story, it says, quote, Christina Pumphrey started hearing whispers about Jackson County Deputy Zachary Wester not long after joining the state attorney's office. You can't trust him, a couple of assistant public defenders told her. You've got to watch him. Our clients are complaining about him. Pumphrey, who spent nearly 15 years as a state government lawyer, went to work for the 14th Judicial Circuit Prosecutor's Office in early May. A native of nearby Bluntstown, she was a familiar face at the courthouse, where she had done trial work for the Department of Children and Families Child Welfare Section. She was assigned to simple drug possession cases. After the warnings about Wester, she started taking a closer look at his traffic stops and arrests. She noticed something was off. Among other things, his written accounts of the stops didn't always match what she could see with her own eyes on the body camera footage. Pumphrey didn't set out to become a whistleblower, but after sharing her concerns about Wester with higher-ups, she set off a chain reaction that ultimately led to his firing, her resignation, and the recent dismissal of nearly 120 cases involving the former deputy. The revelations exposed serious cracks in the criminal justice system in Jackson County. Until Pumphrey's arrival, it appears no one was closely monitoring Wester's body camera videos, one of which shows him with possible drugs in his hand before conducting a search of a pickup truck. The Wester case prompted Jackson County Judge Wade Mercer to inform prosecutors and public defenders he will no longer accept pleas in felony cases at arraignment. Before that, defendants often agreed to plea deals during those early court appearances, something that short-circuited discovery and ended cases quickly before attorneys could review all the evidence. So you got that crazy stuff out of Florida. Over in Illinois, out of Chicago, we have an update on a 2017 case where you will be shocked to find, I'm sure, uh, that the police lied about what happened back then. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Video footage released on Tuesday by a civil rights group shows an off-duty Chicago police officer shooting an unarmed autistic man during an incident initially described as an armed confrontation. Sergeant Khalil Muhammad shot then 18-year-old Ricardo Hayes as he walked on the city's south side. Hayes had wandered away from his home around 5 in the morning on August 13th of 2017, according to a lawsuit over the shooting filed by the ACLU. His caretaker called police, informing them that he was autistic. The grainy home security video, released by the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, shows Hayes running along a sidewalk before stopping. Muhammad then stops the SUV he's driving and gets out. Hayes takes a few steps toward the vehicle before Muhammad shoots him in the arm and chest. The video shows Hayes running off despite his wounds. Now 19 years old, he has recovered from his injuries. At the time, police officials described the incident as an armed confrontation. Subquote, the video shows both that there was no justification for the officer to shoot him and that the initial stories told by Chicago Police Department officials about the shooting that the subquote encounter escalated uh, were false. The sergeant's call to 911 was among the audio files released. Subquote, the guy, like, 
he was about to pull a gun. He walked up to the car, and I had to shoot, Muhammad told a Chicago Fire Department dispatcher. Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson later said Hayes had no weapon. So when you see stories happen in the news, and you have this narrative that promptly comes out about how everything was justified, take it with a grain of salt, because there's a pretty decent chance it's going to be revealed to be bullshit later on down the line. Out of Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice, we actually have good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. From the story, it says, quote, Less than a month before Louisiana voters weigh in on the future of the state's unusual split jury law, a Sabine Parish judge has issued a sweeping decision that declares the law was crafted with racist intent, continues to have a discriminatory impact today, and thus violates the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. The ruling by the 11th Circuit, or sorry, the 11th District Court Judge Stephen Beasley relied heavily on research by historians and legal scholars, as well as an exhaustive analysis published this year by The Advocate, that's the newspaper that this was in, of jury trials conducted across the state over a six-year period. The judge ruled that the newspaper's data provided, subquote, uncontroverted proof that the state's split verdict law has a disparate impact on both black defendants and black jurors. For the time being, Beasley's ruling invalidates split verdicts only in Sleepy Sabine Parish, home to about 25,000 people. But the case could take on more significance if it's appealed and upheld, or if it's simply replicated in other jurisdictions with busier dockets. Uh, so what is the split verdict law? Uh, story continues, quote, Louisiana's law allows for verdicts in felony cases as long as only 10 of 12 jurors agree. Oregon is the only other state with such a law. This is something that uh, several southern states adopted back during Jim Crow because now that black folks were being given rights that they were theoretically entitled to all along, you wanted to make sure if you're a white person and you wanted to keep black folks in check that you could still have them convicted of crimes. Uh, so what they would do is, whereas it used to be you had to have a unanimous jury, all 12 jurors have to agree to convict you, you make that only 10 uh, by having black jurors on the jury, as long as you only have one or two of them, they could vote to find him not guilty, and the person could still be convicted. It's an inherently racist law. Folks kind of knew that, uh, but there's been a lot of recent study confirming it. So that's out of Louisiana. In Maryland, I mentioned up at the uh, the beginning about that CNN story about an officer who raped someone on duty. That's this story right here. Uh, so out of Prince George's County, story says, quote, a Prince George's County police officer accused of ordering a woman to perform a sex act on him during a traffic stop will remain in jail without bond after his bail review hearing was postponed to next week. Prosecutors and defense attorneys agreed Wednesday to delay the bond hearing for Officer First Class Ryan Macklin. Macklin was arrested Monday night and charged with first and second degree rape in connection with the assault that police say occurred while he was on duty in uniform and driving his marked police cruiser. The officer pulled over a woman about one in the morning Thursday in Langley Park and tried to touch her breasts, according to charging documents. Afterward, he ordered her to drive behind a nearby store and perform a sex act on him. The officer also told the woman that he wanted sex, but went back to his cruiser and left the scene after a witness showed up. Uh, quote, 
Law enforcement interviewed this witness who was able to corroborate some of the information and obtained video evidence that supported the victim's story, the charging documents state. Unsurprisingly, this particular officer was taking advantage of someone who was undocumented. Story continues, quote, Casa of Maryland, a Latino and immigrant advocacy group, said the woman approached the group's community advocates to say she had been assaulted, but because of her immigration status was in fear of retribution if she filed a complaint. Uh, and further on down the story, it's actually found out that this particular officer is one of their better officers in the department. It says, quote, during his time with Prince George's police, Macklin was named officer of the month at least twice. Two commendations occurred in 2014, one for recovering drugs and cash during a traffic stop and another for recovering a handgun, apparently amid the rapes taking place on the side. So that's in Maryland out of Michigan in Macomb County. We have a doctor raping inmates. From that story, it says, quote, a doctor at the Macomb County Jail is accused of, and I hate the wording on this, being involved in sexual relationships with multiple inmates receiving treatment while in the jail. That's euphemism for rape because inmates don't get to consent to sex with their superiors. Uh, Macomb County prosecuting attorney Eric Smith charged Dr. Stephen Cogswell of Waterford with six counts of second-degree criminal sexual conduct, each count a felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison. Police and prosecutors allege that Cogswell engaged in a series of sexual encounters with the female inmates between August and September of this year. The acts are said to have taken place in the jail's medical center. Cogswell's phone was recovered and searched by the sheriff's department, and it contained a number of explicit videos and photographs. Uh, also in Michigan, out of Rochester Hills, we have a follow-up on an earlier story. Uh, way back in episode 59, we talked about Jeffrey Ziegler, who was the retired firefighter who tried to kill a kid who happened to knock on his door asking for directions trying to get to his school. Well, he has been acquitted of the attempted murder charge, but he has been convicted for assault. So the story says, quote, In a case that attracted national attention and local outrage, a white Rochester Hills homeowner was convicted Friday for shooting at a lost black teenager who showed up at his door seeking directions to his school. Jeffrey Ziegler was found guilty by a jury in Oakland County Circuit Court of assault with intent to commit great bodily harm, less than murder, and possession of a firearm in the commission of a felony in the April 12th incident at his home involving 14-year-old Brennan Walker. Ziegler had been charged with assault with intent to commit murder, but Judge Wendy Potts gave jurors the option of convicting Ziegler on the lesser charge. Now, also as a sidebar, people have started sharing this story on Twitter about the attempted murder charge like it just happened, like this guy has just been charged with attempted murder. No, he was charged back in April. He was acquitted of that particular crime, but has been committed, uh, convicted rather of the assault with intent to commit great bodily harm less than murder. So just make sure that you click through, follow us if you haven't already, listen to the past episodes, because I won't steer you wrong on the stuff that is happening with these particular cases. Uh, so down in Mississippi, out of Tate County, we have the first rule again, and this is so ridiculous. So I'm not going to give you the full details. I'm going to give you a link to the story, but the gist of it is this. Guy's having a party at his mom's house with the mom there. Police show up, walk into the home uninvited, and start yelling at the mother. And then the guy who lives there, who threw the party, starts recording on his phone, and the police tell him repeatedly that he has to put the phone away as he's recording them in his own house. 
And then when all is said and done, of course, this goes viral online because it's the police barging into your home and then telling you that you can't record them. The sheriff's defense literally is mistakes were made. His exact quote when the, the media ask him about it uh, is, quote, we made mistakes, but the perception that we run roughshod over people and their rights is not true. Bullshit. So that was one quote. But then another quote was, subquote, I just want folks to know the whole story. Why is it wanting folks to know the whole story always seems to exclude them recording things on their own video cameras, them recording things on their own phones? If you really want folks to know the whole story, you'd say everyone can fucking record everything and then just share it all and people can make up their mind. But they never actually want that. Uh, So we're going to give you a link to this particular story so you can review the details. Out of New York, in New York City, uh, the district attorney's office in Manhattan, these are the people prosecuting Harvey Weinstein for sexually assaulting dozens of women, uh, they have announced that they're throwing out some of the charges because the investigator encouraged one of the victims to destroy evidence and then they would hide it from the DA's office. From the story, it says, quote, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has told Harvey Weinstein's attorney that the lead detective in the movie mogul's sexual assault case advised an alleged victim to delete messages from her phone before turning the phone over to prosecutors. The bombshell revelation comes less than a week after the office dropped part of the case against Weinstein, after evidence emerged that the same detective had coached a witness to stay silent about evidence that cast doubt on the account of one of Weinstein's three accusers. The DA's office sent Weinstein attorney Benjamin Braffman a letter on Tuesday saying it had been contacted last week by an attorney for complainant number two, who was complaining the complaining witness behind three counts in the case against Weinstein. According to the letter, the alleged victim told the DA's office that she had expressed concern about turning over phones to prosecutors because they contained personal information. Detective Nicholas DeGuadio, prosecutors said, then allegedly told the accuser to, subquote, delete anything she did not want anyone to see before turning over the phones. She also told prosecutors that the detective told her they would conceal the deletions from the DA's office. According to prosecutors, the accuser never actually deleted anything from her phone and turned them over intact. Uh, So from the standpoint of a defense attorney, if a victim and the police are trying to destroy evidence, that makes it much easier for us to prove that the uh, case should be dismissed because the evidence has been tampered with. So that was a terrible judgment call by that particular officer. Uh, Out of North Carolina, down in uh, Charlotte-Mecklenburg, we've got some bail reforms prompting pushback. From that story, it says, quote, in April, Charlotte Mecklenburg police say two people robbed a convenience store on Gibbon Road in North Charlotte. While pointing handguns at the clerk, they shouted, money, money, where's the money? And then took cash, according to an affidavit from the arresting officer. But instead of approving an arrest warrant for one suspect, a Mecklenburg magistrate issued a criminal summons requiring him to show up in court next month rather than be arrested and transported to the jail. Charlotte defense attorney Bill Powers, who is not involved in the case, says having fewer people post bail is a good idea, uh, but probably not for armed robbery. The new direction on bail is driven in part by Chief Magistrate Khalif Rhodes, who is running for district court judge against Karen McCallum, a senior district attorney. Uh, Rhodes, who is appointed, oversees 34 magistrates who make decisions on whether to issue arrest warrants or criminal summons. 
summonses. The magistrates also often decide the amount of someone's bail. Rhodes is supervised by Chief District Judge Regan Miller, who makes no apologies for the change. So, quote, it's a mindset that we have had historically, that if you are charged with a crime, you should be arrested and put in jail pending your trial. That's really not what constitutionally we are supposed to be doing as judicial officials, so we are trying to change that culture. Uh, You know, I'm on the fence about this. So we've talked previously about violent criminals, people who are in prison for violent crimes, and what to do about them. Should they be part of this same, you know, early release, rehabilitation, and everything else? I don't remember the episode we talked about it, uh, but Josie Duffy Rice has a brother, and her her writing about it was the particular basis for that discussion. Um, and I told you then that I wasn't sure how I felt about it. I feel the same way here. Like I am all for folks not being jailed before trial, as long as they can come to court and they're not going to be a danger to society. Their ability to be free and out and continuing their life is actually better for everybody. Uh, but for violent crime, I don't know. I'm on the fence about it. So I, I like the idea of you actually are innocent until proven guilty, but at the same time, if you're out you know, robbing people at gunpoint, I understand the impulse to have you locked up. So I don't know. We'll see how that turns out. So that's in Charlotte-Mecklenburg. Out of Graham, this is crazy to me, uh, a woman ended up getting her felony arson charges dismissed after she hand-wrote a speedy trial motion, uh, and the judge said, look, the DAs haven't prosecuted her. What do you want me to do? The story says, quote, a Mount Airy woman wrote her way out of four-year-old felony charges in the torching of a green-level trailer last week in Alamance County Superior Court. A Superior Court judge dismissed charges of felony second-degree arson and breaking and entering against Devon Lunn in response to her handwritten motion for a speedy trial. Lunn was accused of setting fire to another woman's trailer on Otter Creek Trail in 2013. She was charged in March of 2014. Lund made a speedy trial motion in December, according to the motion filed this week, giving the state 180 days to bring her to trial. It has not. The lead officer on the case has since left the Alamance County Sheriff's Office, and the delays have prejudiced her case, she writes, as a defense witness has since died and two others have moved to parts unknown. Judge David Hall dismissed Lund's charges Thursday, but she is in federal custody until 2022 on other charges. So this is the stories out of North Carolina. In Ohio, out of Columbus, uh, there's another first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And in this case, this goes back to what we talked about earlier in the episode where people want praise for doing what they're supposed to do in the first place. Uh, this is from Reason Magazine. It says, quote, the Columbus Division of Police thinks the body cam video of Officer Peter Casuccio lecturing two black boys about the dangers of carrying a BB gun is a fine example of protecting and serving. And a lot of people seem to agree. So, quote, this is getting kids killed all over the country, Casuccio tells the boys, an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old whose faces are obscured by big green circles. So, quote, I could have killed you. It is true that the boys whom Casuccio detained last Saturday might have ended up dead, as 12-year-old Timmy Rice did in Cleveland four years ago, and 13-year-old Tier King did in Columbus two years later, because they were playing with something that a nervous cop mistook for a real gun. 
But that sad fact says more about the hastiness of police officers than the recklessness of these two boys, who do not appear to have done anything illegal or especially foolhardy. Casuccio was responding to a 911 call from a woman who said she saw, subquote, two little kids, one of whom, subquote, brandished a gun. When Casuccio located the boys, he forced them to kneel on the ground while he picked up the BB gun. In the edited body cam video, which the CDP, the Columbus Division of Police, released to, subquote, show the good police work that our officers do every day, the boys are back on their feet, leaning against a traffic railing. Subquote, they call in and they say there's two young male blacks, he tells them. They really look young and they just flashed a gun. You had to show somebody because how the hell do they know you had it? Subquote, I didn't show nobody, the younger boy replies. I was just holding it. Subquote, okay, you can't do that in today's world, Casuccio says. That thing looks real, bro. He emphasizes the danger they put themselves in by being seen with a BB gun. You should be sorry, and you should be scared. Do you think I want to shoot an 11-year-old? Do you think I want to shoot a 13-year-old? I pride myself on being a pretty bad hombre, because I gotta be. Don't make me. Depending on your perspective, this incident is either a heartwarming story about a compassionate cop setting wayward youths on the right path, or an alarming story about how easily black kids can be killed for doing something that does not violate the law or anyone's rights. goes back to my oft-stated point on Twitter that the Second Amendment is only for white people. It doesn't belong to anyone else. Of course, frankly, also so does due process and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, so that was out of, what state was that? Was that Ohio? Yeah, that was Ohio. Out of Oregon and Portland, we have an update on the Nazi rally from the summer. We talked about that back in episode 78. That was the one where the police just beat the shit out of the unarmed counter-Nazi observer people. Uh, counter-protesters, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, that's the one where the uh, the police chief, after they police beat folks, she then went on a bunch of right-wing radio shows to brag about the fact that they beat people down. Uh, well, it turns out that the Nazis were actually heavily armed. Some of them were stationed at a local garage on the roof, ready to shoot at people. The police knew about it and then concealed it from the mayor and the city council for two whole months. So from the story, it says, quote, members of the right-wing group Patriot Prayer stationed themselves on a downtown Portland rooftop with a cache of guns prior to a summer protest, city officials announced for the first time Monday. The same day, Mayor Ted Wheeler learned about it. That shocking revelation came as Portland officials scrambled to find a way to end the repeated violent clashes between dueling political factions downtown. Prior to the start of a scheduled August 4th demonstration, subquote, the Portland Police Bureau discovered individuals who positioned themselves on a rooftop parking structure in downtown Portland with a cache of firearms, Wheeler said during a city hall press conference. Burke Nelson, a senior mayoral aide, later said the weapons included, subquote, long guns like sniper rifles. Asked why the public was not told of the incident sooner, Chief Daniel Outlaw said, subquote, hindsight is always perfect. Outlaw said the police bureau warns the public that protesters may be armed. Both right and left wing demonstrators have come to Portland protests armed, she said. Subquote, we push out information as it becomes available to us. We do the best that we can. I somehow doubt that two months later is as it becomes available. So that's out of Oregon. In Pennsylvania, uh, the state has decided that they're going to eliminate all personal mail for inmates of any kind. From that story, it says, quote, Mail call on Thursday was different from any other in Sheena King's 26 years behind bars. 
as usual, as usual, Jesus, I promise you I can actually pronounce words, as usual, the unit officer came to her door, but instead of handing her an envelope with a letter inside, he handed her four photocopied pages stapled together. Subquote, the first page is a copy of the front of your envelope, King wrote in response to emailed questions from Bloomberg. The second is a copy of the back. The third page is blank and appears to be a copy of the back of the letter. The last page is the actual letter. On September 5th, Pennsylvania became the first state in the United States to eliminate personal mail in its prison system. The policy means that its prisoners can no longer receive birthday cards, handwritten notes from grandma, or drawings from their children. Instead, their families send mail to the offices of Smart Communications U.S. Incorporated in St. Petersburg, Florida, where Chief Executive Officer John Logan says employees inspect each piece of correspondence before converting it into a searchable electronic document. The company sends the digital files to the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, where prison officials can review the contents before delivering them as black-and-white printouts to their intended recipients. Each piece of correspondence becomes part of a searchable database, guaranteeing prison officials perpetual access even years after the recipients have been released. Prisons throughout the United States have tightened restrictions on what can and can't be sent through the mail to combat the flow of drugs from the outside world to incarcerated individuals. Some states have banned colorful envelopes, greeting cards, and even computer printouts. But Pennsylvania's prison system is the first to fully eliminate personal mail. Bianca Tylek, director of the Corrections Accountability Project, calls digitized mail services a subquote, tremendous growth opportunity for private companies seeking to contract with prison and jail systems. Using Pennsylvania's 27 prisons and almost 48,000 prisoners as a gauge, Tylek estimates the nationwide market for mail processing could be more than $180 million annually. She also cautions, subquote, because it's early in the game, Pennsylvania is probably getting a better deal. Holy shit. We are totally getting rid of mail so that we can spend your taxpayer money on digitizing the shit so that we can create databases for the prison officials to use in perpetuity. Like, what the fuck? This doesn't make any fucking sense at all. It's a reminder that how we treat inmates in this country is a goddamn travesty, and it's a reminder that it's all about money. That's all that matters. It is not about rehabilitation. It is not about punishment. It is about people getting paid. Uh, At a state college, Pennsylvania, Penn State decided to call in a helicopter to break up a tailgate. Seriously. From the story, it says, quote, a state police helicopter was called to a Penn State tailgate on Saturday after some attendees became rowdy. The helicopter flew low altitude over tailgaters before the Penn State versus Ohio State football game. Wind from the chopper kicked up debris, blew over tents, and stunned onlookers. Video from the ground showed people ducking for cover as the state trooper helicopter passed overhead. Earlier, hundreds of people had gotten out of hand, according to reports in the Associated Press, that resulted in a horse-mounted team of state troopers being called to the tailgate. A man allegedly punched the state police horse, and one state trooper suffered a broken wrist while trying to arrest the man. The troopers on the ground were then pulled back, subquote, in an effort to de-escalate the situation. According to Penn State Police spokesman Ryan Tarkowski, that was when the helicopter was sent in. How sending in a helicopter de-escalates things, I don't really know. This is a waste of taxpayer resources, and it's also an example of collective punishment, collective guilt. Because you got to remember, totally innocent tailgaters 
were affected by the downwash, the wind from the helicopter. You had at least one person who was cut in the face by flying debris. They weren't part of the rowdy crowd, but they got punished anyway. So that's in Pennsylvania. Out of Texas, we have yet another police officer arrested for felony child abuse. From that story, it says, quote, The Dallas police officer arrested on a felony child abuse charge on Saturday is accused of hitting her 8-year-old daughter after the girl published a YouTube video where she had made comments about the family's cat. Sergeant Jamie McDonald, who was accused of injury to a child, was booked into the Rockwell County Jail on Saturday. According to jail records, she remained in jail Monday in lieu of $25,000 bail. The Dallas Police Department had said Sunday that McDonald's was McDonald's, McDonald's singular, not possessive, uh, was arrested by Royce City Police. The girl told the detective that she had posted a YouTube video she made of herself crying and talking about the family cat, which her mother had gotten rid of, according to the arrest warrant affidavit. The girl said her mother was upset about the video and wanted her to delete it. When the girl brought the iPad she had used to her mother, McDonald slapped the left side of her face, knocking the girl to the hardwood floor. McDonald then sat on the girl's stomach and continued hitting her face and arms. Uh, and it goes on from there. Now, interestingly enough, this is not the first time this particular officer has done this sort of thing because you find out later on in the story that she also choked out her 12-year-old son over a completely different situation. So that's in Texas. Out of Utah in Ogden, a federal judge has decided that uh, breaking a guy's hip and legs is totally cool. You still get qualified immunity. From the story, it says, quote, a federal judge Thursday rejected a claim that Ogden officers used excessive force and wrestling an agitated man to the floor of the police station, breaking his leg. In a memorandum decision, U.S. District Judge Bruce Jenkins in Salt Lake City said officers Travis Williams and Cody Marsh were entitled to qualified immunity against civil suit because their actions were reasonable. The judge's action closes the case brought by attorneys for Harold Mark Torbett, an Alabaman who on February 8th of 2016 entered the lobby of the police station seeking medical help and asking the receptionist to hold his firearm for safekeeping. He voluntarily turned over his weapon. Doctors later determined that Torbett, who was traveling across the country to a new job in Seattle, was suffering a severe diabetic episode. Officers Williams, Marsh, and a third officer who responded to a report of a man with a gun ended up tussling with Torbett, and Torbett suffered a broken femur when Williams took him to the ground. But Judge Jenkins said the gun was not a threat to the officer's safety because police had already retrieved it after Torbett set it on a chair in the lobby, uh, yet officers were justifiably concerned by Torbett's subquote strange and aggressive behavior in a place prized as the pinnacle of public safety, a police station. So if you go to the police, you voluntarily turn over your weapons and you say, hey, I need medical care. They can break your leg and get away with it because reasons. That's the gist of it. Uh, out of Virginia, in Norfolk, we have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, Two officers were justified when they pepper sprayed a 16-year-old during an arrest captured on video, Norfolk Police Chief Larry Boone said Friday evening. The teenager hit one of the officers twice during the encounter, Boone said. When they ordered him to put his hands behind his back, he then put them in his pockets instead, which is why he was pepper sprayed. 
you're going to be shocked by this, but this doesn't actually match with the video. Story continues. Boone's version of events contrasts with what the teen's spokesman, Michael Muhammad, reported seeing after he watched the officer's body-worn camera footage. Police have said the officers saw the teen walking in the road around 12.50 Monday afternoon and stopped him because they suspected he might be skipping school. On Friday, Boone added that there had been 210 thefts reported in the area that year. Several cell phone videos of the arrest are circulating on social media. The officer in the passenger seat asks the boy if they can talk to him. The boy then tells them he has nothing to say to them and keeps walking. The cruiser stops. The officer in the passenger seat gets out and snatches the boy's shirt and book bag, subquote, in a very aggressive way, Muhammad said, spinning the boy around. The boy then pulls away from the officer who's grabbing him and tells him to get his hands off of him. That's when the second officer, the one who had been driving the cruiser, pepper sprays the boy in the face. Before playing the footage, Chief Boone told the group they'd see the boy punch the officer, Muhammad said, adding that he never saw that actually happen. Muhammad's recounting of the video more or less lines up with what a witness told the Virginian pilot on Tuesday. The biggest difference... 38-year-old Larry Ricks, who's the witness, said the officer riding in the passenger seat who grabbed the boy did so in a non-aggressive way, simply to make contact with the teen. But, Ricks said, the teen did nothing to deserve being pepper-sprayed or arrested and had every right to be angry about how he was being treated. Ricks said one of the officers offered different responses for why they had stopped the teen. At first, he told Ricks they just wanted to talk with him, but he subquote gave us attitude. Later, the officer mentioned a string of break-ins in the area. Basically, they just came up with reasons as they went along, doing it by the seat of their pants. And, of course, it's on video. Uh, so that's in Virginia. Out of West Virginia, we got a follow-up on the uh, Supreme Court drama there. Now, remember, we've talked about this in episodes 69, 71, 77, and 79. So go back to those if you want to get caught up. But the key news this particular week is that former Justice Ellen Lowry has been convicted in federal court. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Almost a year after West Virginians learned that State Supreme Court Justice Alan Lowry had a $32,000 couch in his court office and a piece of historic state furniture in his home, a jury convicted him Friday on 11 of 22 federal criminal charges. The jury of 10 women and two men found Lowry guilty of seven counts of wire fraud, two counts of making false statements to federal investigators, and one count each of witness tampering and mail fraud. The jury handed up its verdict Friday following two and a half days of deliberation. Jurors acquitted Lowry of nine counts of wire fraud and one count of mail fraud. Jurors were deadlocked on one remaining count of wire fraud, and federal prosecutors were exploring their options in regard to that charge. Lowry, 48, sat still in the courtroom as the clerk read the verdict, and as U.S. District Judge John Copenhaver ruled that Lowry could remain out of jail on a personal recognizance bond until his sentencing hearing in January 2019. Uh, so that is the state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery. Every now and again, we do have stuff from other countries. We got two this week. One is from Germany. It's uh, uh, Bad Aldeslow, I guess is how you pronounce the city. Forgive me, I'm not uh, German and I don't speak it well. The story is actually completely in German, so I had to use Google Translate to try and get the gist of it. So what I'm going to read to you is the Google Translated text, which seems pretty good from the standpoint of English sentences. Uh, it says, On Sunday, October 7th, 2018, the 22-year-old Robin L. was shot dead in Bad Aldeslow by a policeman. 
According to media reports, the police were called on the morning of October 7th. Neighbors had reported that Robin L. was running around on the street with a knife. The police officers of the first arriving patrol car fired a warning shot, whereupon Robin L. fled and ran away. A second patrol car arrived. A policeman aimed at Robin L. and fired two shots to his chest. Robin L. then died at the scene. Uh, so I'm going to give you the link to the full German, and you'll have to translate it on your own. But basically, it's a guy was homeless, uh, apparently was mentally ill, and there's been almost no coverage at all in German media, uh, which makes it kind of a normal day in America, frankly, but this happens to be out in Germany. And then in the United Kingdom, you have a senior British police officer acknowledging that the policing there is still institutionally racist. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, British policing is still institutionally racist. A senior police officer has admitted while launching a drive to boost the number of recruits from minority groups, Chief Constable Gareth Wilson, the national lead for diversity, equality and inclusion, told the UK Independent the service has, subquote, come on leaps and bounds in recent years, but there is more work left to do. Subquote, if you use the definition in the MacPherson report, you could argue policing is institutionally racist, but we've moved on significantly since then, he added. He was referring to the conclusions of an inquiry into the racist murder of black teenager Stephen Lawrence in 1993. It defined institutional racism as the, quote, collective failure of an organization to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their color, culture, or ethnic origin through unwitting prejudice or ignorance that influences processes. Mr. Wilson argued that where racial disparity is seen in policing, like in the disproportionate targeting of black men in stops and searches, it reflects disparity across factors including education, housing, and employment. Subquote, we deal with the consequences of disparity in other public services. He added, policing has undergone a huge step change, but that doesn't mean we haven't got a great deal of work yet to do. He hailed a new toolkit drawn up to increase minority recruitment as a subquote completely new approach that aims to increase public confidence in police among all minority groups across race, religion, disability, gender, and sexuality. I hate to break this guy's bubble, but recruiting is not going to fix it. It helps in certain instances, but it's no different than here in America where you have black police who still act in a racist manner because it's the nature of institutional racism. It's the nature of implicit association bias. It affects black folks as well as white folks, straight, gay, doesn't matter, men, women, they're all affected just the same. Uh, so we'll see how that all turns out. Good luck to the people in the United Kingdom. So, folks, that is it for all of the stories for the past two weeks that we have got. Thankfully, it was a bit slow. So even though this is two weeks worth of news, it is still less than an hour and a half. Hallelujah. Uh, at some point, there will be a law 140. I don't know when. But until then, if you liked what you've heard, you like the podcast, please do us a favor. Leave us a written review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to listen to us. And as always, on behalf of myself, Chance the Pupper, Mike the Sound Guy, thank all of you for listening. I hope you have a blessed week, and hopefully we'll talk to you next Monday. Take care. <laughs>